My pleasure to welcome from Roger Sportsnet, Sam Cosentino. Uh, I've known you for so long, Sam, when we were back on the pipeline days with uh, Guy Flaming. And uh, wonderful here many years later be sitting talking hockey once again. As we're in different uh, spots, you're doing a lot more national games and uh, even uh, in between the benches on the ice, uh, some some calling games. But uh, the, the world of hockey seems to come full circle for a lot of people, including us and Chris Knobloch, who is back now with Connor McDavid again yeah, with the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, strange situation. I was out in Vancouver when that news broke. But I guess let's just uh, maybe start with Chris Knobloch. Is he a much different coach now than when he coached McDavid back in Erie, do you think? So, so I haven't tracked him in terms of his AHL, but I did go and look at the roster yesterday. And, and you know, the New York Rangers are obviously a team with a ton of money. And I looked at the roster and I thought, well, I, how much are the New York Rangers really putting into this? And I say that because I sit here just outside the Toronto market. I look at the Toronto Marlies. I look at what they pay their veterans. And they put a lot of thought and, and resources into their American Hockey League team. Just at first glance, and I, and I you know, I, I think it's uh, fairly accurate. I, I just don't see that happening from the Rangers. So when Chris Knobloch goes from the Canadian Hockey League gets into the National Hockey League as an assistant with the Philadelphia Flyers. That goes sideways and then ends up with a pretty good organization that probably, um, you know, pays it, its coaches quite well at the American League level. But I don't know how much other resources are going into making that a successful team. So having said that, to be able to track his progress, you kind of want to do it by numbers. But I, I just don't think in this situation that's the way to do it. What I would say in, in just watching some of the press conferences since Chris has taken over that he looks to me to be very much the same guy. Really smart, really thoughtful, genuine, calm, not going to freak out on you, that sort of thing. Where I do think he has a, a real edge in, in coming into this job is a couple of things. Having coached in two different junior leagues in, in the Western Hockey League and winning a title there with Kootenai in 2011 and then again with, uh, with Erie in the Ontario Hockey League in 2017, the diversity of players, styles of game, I think is important having been on a National Hockey League bench as an assistant for a couple of years, also important to get the sense of what that's like to give you the experience that, hey, if that job as a head guy ever comes up in the National Hockey League, here's what I do the same, here's what I do different. So uh, he's as prepared a guy as you're going to find. He's got wonderful support there um, you know, on the, on the Oilers bench. And, and obviously I, I'm wishing him the, the very best um, because I always like to see when guys who I've, had experiences with either calling games or in meetings with coaches and so on and so forth, get those opportunities because they're few and far between They're They're one of 32 jobs. And I think Chris is going to do a good job there. Can he get him into the playoffs? I mean, the numbers say it's going to be extremely difficult, but I, I suppose if there's someone who can do it, it would be Chris. Yeah, I, this is a thing that I really like about Chris Knobloch, and you mentioned it a bit, championship experience. He has it as a player as well. Four championships at the University of Alberta where I got to know him a little bit when he was a player, and then he won again uh, in the uh, CHL uh, in, in the coaching ranks, and so this guy knows how to win. Um, I think a lot has been being made about uh, his past relationship with Connor McDavid. Does it hurt? I don't think so, but 
I, I'm having a hard time believing that they would just hire anybody to make Connor McDavid happy. I think the quality of the person, the quality of the knowledge, and a little bit of his experience all comes into play on this. And and right, let's remember, he's not the only person new that's coming in on this bench. There's Paul Coffey as well, and there's you know different voices. So it's not just Chris Knobloch's voice only for the Oilers now. I'd have a hard time believing, Dean, that, that Connor wasn't involved in the conversation. Yeah, I agree. And that's not to say that he wanted Jay Woodcroft out. I suspect here's how it went down. The Oilers looked and said, okay, we've demoted a goalie. We've looked at the trade market. We're up against the cap. We don't have any option to shake things up unless we change the coach. So then that decision gets made by, well, what looks like to be uh, Jeff Jackson now. And at that point, um, hey, we're going to make a change. What do you think of A, B, C, and D? Not, hey, I'm Connor McDavid. I don't like what's going on here. I'm going to management. I want to change. I want my guy. I don't believe it went down that way at all. But I also have a hard time believing that Connor had no prior knowledge or at least some input into the decision. Totally agree with you, uh, 100%, Sam. I, I, you know, and, and there was obviously a, some different messages sent at that press conference. I think that I can look at what Ken Holland said and what Jeff Jackson said and actually believe it that maybe Holland did talk to some veterans, but maybe Jeff Jackson was saying for this actual decision, they didn't say, do you approve on this, Connor? Maybe they just said, what do you think about this? And then you know, go into that. So I, I think we could probably speculate and people are speculating on that a lot. We could also speculate before we get to this year's National Hockey League draft on the Calder race. And, and everybody was looking at it saying it's Bedard's, but what Leo Carlson has done in the last little bit, I think has to at least people say, Hmm, maybe. What do you think, Sam? It's awesome. I love it. I love to see the number of guys that are involved here. My colleague, Jason Buchla was a huge Logan Cooley fan. So he arrived on the scene, you know, a little bit later. Um, but man, is he ever skilled? Is he ever gifted? And is he's just a menace on the power play? Leo Carlson managing his time, you know, that might, might end up being the difference when you get down to it. Adam Fantilli quietly going about his business. Luke Evangelista with Nashville who had a great 24-game stretch at the end of last year. I mean, you're talking about some high-end guys. I'm so happy to see Marco Rossi, who won a, you know, a CHL scoring title a couple of years ago with Ottawa and then you know the, the COVID issues that he had. And then, of course, you got Bedard with, with nine goals. But the guy that I have the sleeper in all this is Pavel Minchikov. He, too, has nine points. He's with Anaheim defenseman playing a ton of minutes. I think that position is harder to be successful at at a young age. That position, in my opinion, requires the second most experience, next to goalie, of course, to be successful at that position. This guy, I, I've watched him a few times, and I'm just amazed by his poise. He is really, really good. Can he maintain it through a whole year? Well, it's possible. And if he does so, he's going to be the, the sleepy guy in the conversation. He won't be the sexy guy. He won't be the Bedard, the Fantilli, um, the Cooley. But he might be the sleeper in all this just because of uh, a positional bias. 
And do you know what? I actually think being an offensive defenseman as a young player is easier than being a really strong defender. And you can look at all the sexy stats and everything, but when you have a rookie defenseman who can defend that well and the coaches and the scouts and the players all see it, they that's who I think they would be like, yeah, the goals are impressive, but this guy acting like a 30-year-old defenseman in his own end in his rookie season, that's what really impresses the hockey people, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, no question. Like, how are you so poised at that age? But I know he's a he's a big fan of the game and learning and dedicated to the craft in terms of, you know, how he stayed away from home to work out the off season, that sort of stuff, going through Saginaw and then eventually in Ottawa in, in the Ontario Hockey League in, in what was, you know, a really that difficult time for him and still remains that way in, in his homeland. So, uh, awesome, awesome stuff. I, I, I love the young man. Had a chance to meet him in his draft year very briefly, um, but just just really impressed by by what he's been able to do from that position. But this thing, you know, you know, it's not going to be decided at the halfway mark. It won't be decided at trade deadline. It's it's going to go to the wire. There's just too many really good young players that are having great years so far. And that's what we want. We want, you know, as much as uh, every once in a while you have that wire-to-wire rookie finish, that's, you know, like T. Mussolini and his 76 goals. There was pretty much no doubt about that one going back in time. But intrigue is great. And and we had no intrigue in last year's draft as far as the first overall pick. You know, the year before, it was all about intrigue and different things. And this year... I think we have some intrigue again, and, and I think it starts off the ice. The The story, Cole Eiserman and Macklin Celebrini and their friendship is a great story. I mean, we've had Taylor versus Tyler before, and every time you talk to them, they didn't really know these guys. These guys know each other. They're buddies. It's uh, a really a, a unique situation, and... You know, and maybe you go back to the Yakupov Galchenyuk when they went one and one and three when they were playing with Sarnia, who would have had, you know, some experience as, as teammates previously. But this is kind of a cool thing that these guys have grown up through, through the Shattuck ranks. Uh, you know, have gone separate ways in terms of their path forward after that, and now will converge once again, hopefully in in, in Vegas in June. And, you know, it's another lobby for for Vegas for what's probably going to be the final in-person draft. But anyways, um, really, really neat situation there. I, I do think that Celebrini is a guy who's going to go wire to wire. The more I, I see what he's doing at, at BU as a freshman, looks a lot like Fantilli, whereas in this case, he doesn't have a Bedard to go against when it comes to Celebrini. He has a really good player in Iserman, but Iserman's a winger, and yes, he's a goal scorer. But Celebrini playing that center ice position, I think, is going to give him that edge and going to allow him to run with this thing uh, right until we get to wherever we're going in June. Yeah, and uh, I, I think Vegas is probably a, a pretty good one. If it is going to be the last in-person draft, which I, I think is a bit of a shame, just just on that oh, point, yeah. I, I think it's just so fun to hear the fan base cheer for some and obviously boo their rivals and the conversations. Uh, listen, I'll say as a as a reporter covering the draft, it can sometimes be sleepy, but I would rather it be sleepy in person than watching it on TV. And for a fan, there it's it's fun because you're seeing the conversations happen before you. I mean, I think it's a bad idea just just in in my opinion to get rid of the in person draft. That's my thoughts. Yeah, I, I do too. And it's tough to go against budgetary concerns sure. in any business, and even at that level, you know, hey, we just bought out. Uh, you're Minnesota and you just bought out whatever in, in contracts from, from Suter and Parisi, but you don't want to spend a hundred grand to bring your people into the, into a city for, for a couple of days. Like sometimes that 
it's it's almost ass backward thinking. But when you're going against 32 teams with budgets, you had a couple of, you know, an owner in, in Ottawa just paid almost a billion dollars, and now you got to go tell him to spend another hundred grand to bring his people to, you know, to wherever it is for draft or or whatever the cost that is. But you know, it's probably somewhere in that neighborhood. I guess that's a that's a tough look too. But there's nothing like in person and unfortunately we got desensitized to virtual things over the course of of the pandemic um and that's obviously the way the world the way in which they kind of want to move forward with this um i also think it takes away from the experience from the kids yeah the, the national hockey league will say well we don't know we don't owe anything to the kids they're they're not in the league they may never even get to the league um so who do who is it that we owe anything to um it's a pretty unique once in a lifetime experience the hockey the nhl draft is different than any other for for the emotion that it uh you know that uh that it creates um it sucks it sucks uh, it'd be the end of an era but uh i guess uh we'll see how it goes and see what they can do to kind of make it neat from afar if you will yeah and uh, i i'm guessing that if they do go away from it eventually it's going to come back because it's a it's a really fun fan fest event so anyway back to the actual players Iserman, celebrini what's the next level is you know if you think celebrini can go wired or wire is there a group then of a bunch of players that could go at two or is is Iserman solidified at two what's the after the number one pick setup look like in your opinion as we're months away I think I think Eisenman's probably the guy that to, to stay in that spot at least as I as I look at it today. Then you're looking at the um, entrance of defensemen into the conversation of Shunov at Michigan State. Um, you know you're you're talking about Sam Dickinson and, uh, with the London Knights. You're talking about Demidov as a forward. It starts to really diversify itself from that point on. Uh, but I sort of look at this as a as a one and two race, not necessarily a one, two race, but a one and a two. And then, you know, some somewhat of a race after that. So it'll be fascinating. I mean, you know, people put such a premium on defensemen that there's going to be a couple of guys there that uh, are, are going to end up as defensemen inside the top 10. We'll see how early that starts. Uh, but probably those guys start to end the conversation as early as, as number three. Um, there's so many mitigating factors, of course, right? Belarusian, Russian players. Does a player play here? Does he play over there? Um, you know, do you need the forward? Do you need the winger? Do you need the center? Is it more important to go high with the D? Like, there's a lot of uh, mitigating factors that probably aren't going to change between now and June, um, as is the case with the standings and who ends up in and out of the playoffs. That that also has a has a bearing on who's who's selecting and and how early. And, and every draft seems to have themes. And, you know, you look back at past drafts and, you know, what Jake Sanderson is doing now, you know, obviously the Ottawa Senators saw some some really impressive stuff. And, you know, you can, you can look at every draft and say, oh, this one had this theme or this one was a defense heavy after that first forward. Is there a, a theme or uh, a feel that you look at for this year's draft uh, that, that you've been talking to scouts about? Well, the, the diversity part of it, I think, is really interesting. And not, not just geographically, but, you know, I think about Celebrini and Levshunov. Both are NCAA guys. That has seemingly started to become more and more of a trend where, you know, players will graduate out of the, the USHL or their path to college hockey and go in as essentially underage freshmen. 
Um, you know, we have seen it in the past. I think it's becoming more of a trend. You're looking at the, um, the reemergence of the, the Ontario Hockey League back to, to prominence with some really good players there. Western Hockey League, again, not so much in the Quebec League in terms of first-round talents, uh, but the Swedes will emerge. Not a ton of them on high on the list right now. The Finns will emerge. You have the, the Russian players, Belarusian players, Slovaks, Czechs. Diversity in geography for sure, but diversity in terms of positions. A lot of really good defensemen. We'll definitely see in the double digits go in, in the first round for defensemen. And, um, you know, do you want the center position with Celebrini? Is it really important for your uh, group to have scoring off the wing like you would with either of them? So there's a lot of diversity to it. And, and again, I don't mean it just in a geographical sense, but a positional sense and, and a sense where these players regardless of nationality, are located in different geographical spots, uh, adding to that uh, theme of diversity, if you will. And then there is the goaltenders. For two years, we haven't had a goaltender take in the first round, although I think just outside of the first round uh, last year. And for three years, we did have a goaltender taken uh, in the first round. This seems to go in a bit of a wave, and I wonder if that's the, the position development or something, but I'm not sure if there's a goaltender hanging around that's knocking on the first round this year or not, in your opinion? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to see that goaltender going the first round. There's a couple of kids in the CHL, um, more specifically in the Ontario Hockey League, Ryerson Leanders in, in Mississauga, uh, Carter Georgia in, in Owen Sound, that have earned B ratings from National Hockey League Central Scouting. Um, that does not project as a, as a first-round player. Size-wise, I think those two have already, uh, you know, you get eliminated by a number of teams if you're not six foot two. I don't think either one of them is at that height. Uh, not to say that they, they won't grow or can't grow um, between now and when the draft comes, but typically you're pretty close to what that looks like uh, already in terms of height with, with the current age. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see that. I think there's going to be too many other options forward-wise, defense-wise, um, to take a chance on a goalie, especially if that goalie is, is sub-6-2 and will have more um, you know, um, definition on that when we get closer to the draft. Well, you kind of mentioned it about uh, the the evolution of the draft, and and you know we saw it. There, there was you know for a long time the draft was mostly Canadians, and then Europeans. Uh, as people started to explore that, and, and this is obviously going back in time, and then I thought the Americans, uh, you know, I thought there was a lot more Europeans getting drafted. The Americans uh, really stepped up the game from the NCAA, and you mentioned the USHL, and now we have the BCHL breaking away, and I've been told the hockey is exceptional this year in the BCHL. What it means is more choices for kids. Uh, it's a little bit more work for the scouts, but this is, we're not too far off from Austin Matthews going to Europe during his draft year because he was looking uh, for an option that worked for him. And, and that's what it is for kids going into their draft year is how is this going to work for me? And the changing landscape, I think, is good for choices. It just involves a lot more conversations and a little bit more work for the scouts to get out to these games. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the number one thing is scouting is just trying to contextualize everything in terms of you're, you're trying to get to look at these players and compare them apples to apples as best as possible. And it's just, that's a really, that's probably the most difficult uh, task in scouting is getting everything broken down apples to apples. And so, you know, again, that diversity creates more issues in trying to achieve that goal. 
Uh, so it'll be fascinating to see how people, you know, shake it all down once once we get there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, plenty of work still to be done. You know, World Juniors obviously a big event. You get some four and five nations tournaments that are upcoming. Of course, you have your regular season playoffs that that tend to weigh a little heavier when you get to the playoffs for for a lot of these guys. So still still plenty to be determined on on that front for sure. Outstanding, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Uh, we look forward to uh, following uh, your draft uh, guides, articles, and lists at sportsnet.ca and seeing you on the broadcast. And then and we get to uh, be surprised or um, maybe not surprised at some picks in June, hopefully in Vegas. Thanks so much for joining us here on Game Changers. All right. Thanks, Dino. Great seeing you.